Hi there, and welcome to a new episode of Impact Talks. Today we have Michiel Selir with us. He's an aerospace engineer and an entrepreneur in aerospace, transport, logistics, and defense. Michiel, please introduce yourself to the people. Tell, they, tell them where you're from and what you do. Hi, um, very nice to be here. So thank you very much for, uh, for inviting me for this. Uh, so Michiel Selir, indeed. Um, I'm an aerospace engineer. I'm based in the Netherlands. Uh, I've been born and raised in the Netherlands uh, as well. Um, I've uh, uh, graduated from Delft University of Technology. Uh, and uh, after that, I uh, started working at the uh, Netherlands Aerospace Center, uh, also in the Netherlands. Uh, and uh, after that, in 2015, uh, I decided to take myself out of my comfort zone and uh, become an entrepreneur. So um, I want to start at the beginning, like we always do at these podcasts. Um, why aerospace engineering? Why not any different type of engineering? That's a very good question uh, because I, I actually uh, I have a very wide uh, interest uh, area. Um, I think part of that decision was made because uh, my uncle is an aerospace engineer. Um, and uh, beside it, I think I've always had a, a passion and an interest for, for flying. It's just something uh, very magical um, if you see these heavy aircraft uh, take off into the sky. Uh, it always, uh, I would say, really uh, puzzled me how that works and uh, I wanted to find out why and, uh, and, and contribute. And uh, so, uh, yeah, I think early on I uh, developed a passion in, uh, in aircraft, so. I think the main question that I've had maybe prepping for this podcast, and I think that a lot of people tend to ask nowadays in the world is um, electrical flying, partially why we've invited an aerospace engineer, but also somebody who is an entrepreneur in that space is because I know for a fact that you've encountered some of these things. Uh, so I definitely want to cover your history and how you ended up there. But before we go really deep into your history, um, I wanted to know if what type have you encountered electrical flying? How far along are we? Clearly, you're qualified. That's why I asked about your history and how you started with it. Tell me about electrical flying. Well, what what is uh, your opinion on it? Uh, so it's very clear that uh, we have a, climate, a big climate challenge. One of, I think, the, the main uh, problems in the world uh, and, and, and a key problem is that it is a, a very sneaky problem. Uh, climate change doesn't happen overnight. It happens uh, gradually, uh, but it has become very, very clear now that we need to do something uh, with the climate. So, And in general, uh, I think throughout my career, uh, I've always uh, uh, worked on making aviation either cleaner, safer uh, or cheaper. Uh, basically, so uh, and um, uh, it, it, uh, so far, I would say uh, you, you see in aviation that uh, we have a lot of, of um, evolution, uh, making aircraft a, a little bit more aerodynamic, uh, making engines a little bit more efficient. Uh, but we really see that that uh, in the past few years that a step change is needed. Uh, and we really need to go towards uh, zero emissions and uh, because uh, there has been advances in, in battery technology and uh, electric mobility, uh, especially the automotive industry of course has, has made uh, big steps in, in, in the past decade. Uh, it has also become feasible now uh, to start with, uh, with electric flying and, and the whole idea about uh, that is basically to, uh, to make it more sustainable and uh, create a, a zero emission, uh, if possible, uh, flying experience. 
what what has stopped the industry because i i have a feeling that the airline industry has much more cash and budget than the car industry i mean maybe that's just me assuming but why why did they have to wait for the car industry before they could catch up uh well the main i would say challenge for electrical aviation is the energy density of batteries uh so uh obviously uh, kerosene uh, and and actually also uh, normal fuel is, is is very energy efficient which is the reason why we use it so much uh, in in our daily lives at the moment uh, but weight is always very critical for uh, for aerospace companies so you need a uh, a good energy density of the fuel uh, in order to make it work for, for aviation because the more you, you take with you if the fuel itself starts to weigh a lot you need to take more fuel to carry the fuel so it's like a sort of a cascading thing and uh, even at the moment uh, the, the battery density of uh, the energy density of batteries is, is about 60 times less than kerosene still so uh, we definitely have some steps to take there so that's why it's been difficult I think uh, to introduce this into, uh, into aviation and another thing you you mentioned that the, uh, the aerospace companies have a lot of cash. Well, actually, aerospace is a, a business, especially the airlines. Uh, uh, it's very competitive at the moment, uh, and uh, and margins are very thin. So, uh, in that sense, uh, aerospace is uh, not not in that sense uh, 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 an industry where there is an abundance of cash, unfortunately. And then a third reason I think why that happens slowly is the certification requirements. Uh, obviously, if you need to put anything in an aircraft, it needs to be extremely safe and up to the normal safety levels of, of aviation. Uh, and that always takes time uh, and, and money uh, to, uh, to develop that. So that's uh, also a reason why uh, innovations in, in aerospace tend to take more time than you would like them to take. How come you got so fascinated with making airlines uh, or just flying more sustainable? Um, like, how did you end up, I guess, in that career is my question. Was there something during your education that was happening? Um, what triggered you to go into that? Yeah, I, th I think uh, everybody, uh, and including myself, uh, likes to, uh, to leave something valuable uh, in the world and, and, and to add value and, and to do something meaningful. At least I like to do something uh, meaningful in, in, my, uh, in my work. And, and that is actually uh, one of the key drivers, I think is to work on meaningful subjects uh, and preferably with nice people as well. <laughs> uh, that that is that's I think has been a key driver all along. And um, yeah, when I studied aerospace engineering uh, and, and started to work uh, early on in NLR, you see that uh, there is a need to, to make it more uh, efficient. Uh, first of all, uh, to make it more affordable because fuel uh, consumption and, and, and the cost of flying are already, uh, I would say, attached to each other. Um, so there's always been a drive to, to make aviation more, uh, more efficient uh, and uh, that's I think the, the way I, I rolled into it. Uh, although I've, I've, I've encountered many subjects uh, during, my, uh, during my career on improving aviation, uh, reducing the, the fuel consumption has always been, uh, been one of them. Yeah. We really need to do something. All, all the other industries are moving and, and aerospace also needs to, to contribute its, uh, its share. So. What, what kind of subjects have you encountered as you progress through your career? 
Uh, I've, I've done a, a quite a lot of things. I've, I've uh, done a lot of work on drones, uh, which are now, uh, I would say, more and more uh, finding their ways in, in, into our lives, obviously, uh, because also there has been a big revolution in, uh, in microelectronics and making everything smaller. So now we have all these, these nice uh, small drones flying around, but I already started working on those and, and looking at civil applications of drones uh, around 2000. Uh, so 20 years ago, uh, and at that time it was also again uh, quite difficult uh, to uh, work with the regulations, uh, the, the certification of drones, how do you make it safe. Uh, so that's a subject I worked on. Um, I worked on aircraft noise a little bit, uh, especially modeling uh, the approach that aircraft make to the airport and try to find ways to make sure that they, uh, uh, the, the perceived noise on, on the ground is as little as possible and still have a safe uh, approach to the, uh, to the airfield. Uh, so that's something I've worked on. And uh, yeah. how, how can you go a little, I'm just fascinated by something like that, like how do you do that? Uh, so one of the things that, that uh, people worked on in, in those days is the uh, advanced continuous descent approaches, as they call it. Uh, and that basically means that uh, the, the traditional approach is uh, where you talk to the air traffic controllers uh, and they just clear you for a certain flight level. So you come down from uh, typically 10 kilometers uh, in steps uh, to a certain flight level, you get cleared. Uh, but every time you, you go down and you come to that flight level, you need to gear up the engine a little bit to go from, from descending flight, which is obviously very energy efficient because gravity is doing the work for you a little bit. Uh, uh, but then you need to go to horizontal flight again. So you need to, to power up a little bit. And uh, at this stepwise approach, every time you need to power up a little bit, uh, and at some point you're flying at 2000 feet, which is 600 meters. Uh, and for example, here in the Netherlands, uh, there are some approaches that, that go over cities like Leiden, for example, uh, a typical city where uh, aircraft tend to level off uh, exactly above the city. They need to, to give some, some additional thrust uh, to keep the aircraft flying, and that makes noise. And with a continuous descent approach, the trick is actually to uh, basically from a certain level just glide all the way to the airport and try to give as little thrust as possible and try to also change the thrust as little as possible because it's also the trust changes that you that you perceive that's the moment you look up perhaps you you, you uh, relate to that if you hear an aircraft and suddenly it starts to make uh, more noise that's the moment that you look up uh, so it's also not just the absolute level but the changes and this you try to avoid with sort of a gliding flight and the challenge that you uh, encounter then is that uh, if uh, you let aircraft loose in terms of the speed uh, and the altitude where they're flying as air traffic control, you're also losing grip, so to speak, uh, on uh, the spacing between the aircraft a little bit. So, so the, the trick is to make sure that you can do that safely uh, and still get, uh, especially on, on, on very busy airports, uh, still uh, get the, uh, the airport capacity that you need. Because obviously you can space aircraft 10, 20 minutes apart, but uh, if you need to land one every two, three minutes, like is the case on busy airports, then um, yeah, you, you can't afford to do that basically in the, in the rush hour, so to speak. So to make that safe, these gliding flights, that, that was the challenge. I've, uh, sorry for keep asking these questions because I'm always interested because I've, I've flown a lot. How does an airport like Amsterdam manage to get these airplanes every two to three minutes? I feel like one of them will kind of screw up and have to redo the whole thing. So. It, does really nobody screw up and just land every two, three minutes? Or are there like a couple of people who like pilots that tend to screw up, have to do, redo the whole thing? 
and and then like how does one handle that yeah so so uh, that, that's a very good question so uh, you have the uh, the air traffic control who is who's actually guiding that so so they already see the aircraft coming uh, and they know the flight plans uh, really well ahead and it's actually their job to sort of space them on the approach to such a way that uh, uh, for the pilots it, it it's then uh, just following the instructions, basically, uh, it is actually quite easy to uh, to keep apart. Obviously, uh, sometimes something goes wrong, uh, especially if, if weather conditions are, are, are bad. Uh, in the case of storms, for example, then uh, it becomes much more difficult for, for aircraft to land. And, uh, and sometimes then uh, you see that somebody needs to do a go around, as, as we call it. So they're almost on, on, the, on the tarmac and then they, uh, they find out that uh, maybe because the, yeah, the landing is not stable enough. So they give uh, full throttle and, and, and uh, take off again and, uh, and retry the approach. And that, of course, then it's up to air traffic control to uh, sort of uh, deal with that uh, and make sure that he gets spaced into the, uh, the approach uh, again in a nice way. So and that, that's really, uh, I would say, the, the art of air traffic control. But so when, when there's a two, three minute window, I'm assuming that they have to space themselves after like two or three airplanes before they can come back. Yeah, 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 correct. Yeah, yeah. If you do a go around, then uh, you, you'll uh, you'll have to go into the queue, uh, so to speak, uh, a little bit further on, and there will be a few other aircraft uh, landing before you, unless, of course, there is an emergency situation. Uh, then uh, they will clear the, the runway and they'll put the other aircraft on hold if there is a, a really uh, big reason why you need to land urgently. Uh, we're going to obviously cover still like all the projects you've worked in, especially like the, the first one I'm very interested in with the, the National Space uh, Laboratory, I think it was, yeah. but um, still on the airplane side. So from my understanding, um, the, the whole flight is done by autopilot, but the takeoff and landing, that's where the pilot comes in. Is that correct? Uh, almost uh, correct, I would say. Uh, a takeoff is definitely something that usually pilots are, are still involved in. Um, uh, then indeed, uh, the, I would say the whole cruise flight is, is usually done uh, on autopilot. Uh, and then the landing, uh, that can be either done by the pilots uh, or that can be done uh, automatically actually. Uh, depends a little bit on the, uh, the equipment of the airport, uh, but all the major airports, they have the, the right equipment on the ground to help the aircraft land uh, automatically. And uh, it also depends on the, uh, the equipment on board of the aircraft, of course, and, and uh, I would say the certification level of the, uh, of the autopilot. But, uh, but all modern, uh, I would say, airliners, uh, larger aircraft are, are capable of uh, an automatic landing. How does automatic landing work? Okay, so uh, at the airport uh, you have uh, two radio signals being transmitted, uh, what they call the glide globe and the localizer. Uh, so the localizer is giving basically the direction uh, towards the airport, so it's just an, uh, like a radio wave uh, emitted in the, uh, in, in the same direction as the, as the runway is located. And the glide slope uh, is a signal which is under a three degree, uh, I should do it like this, under a three degree angle, uh, more or less to the start of the, of the runway. Uh, so uh, if, you, if you follow that signal down in, in the aircraft, you can basically, uh, traditionally pilots used to do this, you can, you can see 
these, these two radio signals and you can sort of uh, home in on them and if you follow them they'll take you right to the start of the, uh, of the runway. And, uh, and that's basically been um, uh, made automatic, uh, so, so the aircraft uh, detects that signal, sends it to the autopilot. Actually, there's usually a, a number of autopilots uh, who, are, who are doing that at the same time in order to make it safe. Uh, and, and they basically calculate the uh, inputs uh, to the, uh, the control services, uh, the rudder and the... Uh, um, um, uh, and, and the other control services to, to make sure that the maneuver um, is executed uh, uh, safely and, and you end up uh, safely on, on the runway. And then depending a bit on the outer land mode, uh, usually also the taxi, uh, uh, where the, the slowdown is included as well, up to the taxi. So when it's landing, it's pretty much now on autopilot. What's the why isn't the takeoff yet automated if it's done with radio signals? Uh, the, the takeoff is usually not done with radio signals, so, so that's usually the landing, and, and that is, uh, as I said, performed automatic, but uh, up to a certain wind level. If, if the wind gets too hard, the pilots need to do it themselves, and they also do it themselves usually uh, just to keep current, basically, to keep uh, practice. But um, I, I must say I'm not 100% certain uh, on uh, the automation of, of takeoff or why uh, exactly that doesn't happen. I think quite early on they switched to something automatic as well, but uh, I think it's just especially the fact that they need to wait for, for the clearance uh, to be allowed to take off uh, and they're monitoring the, uh, the speeds, uh, they're monitoring if the, if the runway is clear. Uh, nothing else gets onto the runway, etc. So uh, these these type of things are uh, are done uh, pretty manual, uh, as far as I know. Cool. Okay, super technical questions. I want to go back to your history a little bit. Um, so out of university, you get uh, some of your first jobs. I think one of some of the I think second job or something. You ended up in the National Aerospace Laboratory. What what were you doing there? Um, yes, that was actually my first job after uh, after university, uh, and I stayed there for 18 years, so quite a long time. Uh, and I, I did a, a many projects. So uh, the project I uh, I mentioned on on the drones, for example, is is what I did there. I, I worked on uh, wake vortexes uh, um, detection systems, especially when the A380 was introduced. Um, so the bigger an aircraft is, the bigger you have these these vortices behind the uh, the aircraft wing. Uh, maybe you've seen that sometimes uh, if they're landing in the, in the fog a little bit, you see these two big vortices uh, going. And uh, actually, if you have a very big aircraft followed by a very small aircraft, there's always a risk that if you end up in this vortex, it will uh, basically turn you upside down almost. So uh, that's pretty. Uh, 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 pretty tricky, so to speak. So uh, we did some. I did some research on that uh, s uh, drones, and then especially focusing on autonomous flight and focusing on uh, safety. How to make drones fly safely with other aircraft? Um, I worked on uh, uh, flight control systems a little bit, autoland systems. Uh, so uh, really a, a whole number of subjects. Uh, noise, as I mentioned uh, before. So. So was it more of a research role that you were doing or, or was your research or like the things you worked on, was it eventually like implemented by some big companies? Uh, yeah, so, so NLR is a research institute. Uh, so we work together typically with uh, the government and with industry and in some cases with the Ministry of Defense if there are defense related topics. Uh, so but, uh, yeah, we do the applied research and that definitely gets transferred uh, uh, into I would say reality by industry uh, later on. So 
that that's usually the way it did. So, uh, so I had a research role in the beginning of my career and then at the end of my career in NLR, I moved to a more commercial uh, entrepreneurial role. What, what type of uh, commercial role does a research lab do then? Uh, we, uh, so I became a business uh, development manager for the aerospace systems division uh, and NLR uh, is, is not a 100% funded uh, entity. So uh, at the time uh, about uh, 18 to 20% of the, uh, the, the, the turnover of NLR was uh, just uh, government uh, money to do certain basic research and to keep our facilities uh, up to date. Uh, and the rest, I would say, is basically uh, just going out there, like I would say, almost a normal company, uh, and and uh, do acquisition and uh, make sure that you you get meaningful contracts from uh, the various stakeholders in the, in the segment. So in that sense, uh, although research sounds like it's a, a, a very state uh, subsidized thing, that that is partly definitely true, but but definitely not for. Uh, for yeah, for for all the, uh, the money. So, uh, and there's also competition in that sense between research labs uh, in Europe a little bit, which is not necessarily a bad thing. I think uh, so. There is co a lot of collaboration, uh, but also sometimes uh, uh, some competition uh, between ideas and and, uh, and entities for for grant money. Uh, but also commercial contracts from from uh, companies. So we used to work for for companies all over the world to do some uh, research for them. So the, my question is, because obviously, you know, the, the event and all the startups that come through, but also just genuine interest from my side, because um, I, I love business development and sales. So how uh, do you do sales for such uh, an entity, I guess, a lab? Like, I'm assuming the clients are not small companies where do you start you get into put into that position what does your first day or first week look like could you elaborate more on that yeah sure uh, actually uh, nlr does work also with quite small companies uh, so we we have a, a role so, so nlr is a, a not-for-profit foundation so although uh, um, we, uh, we we have a commercial uh, uh, side uh, to the to to the company uh, it's all not-for-profit not so uh, and there is definitely a role for NLR in the Dutch ecosystem to help smaller companies uh, to uh, yeah to grow and and to the and to yeah to do research to get access to the facilities that NLR has uh, because they're usually too expensive for uh, definitely for smaller companies to to have them on their own. Uh, so the fact that we had these facilities is very interesting for smaller companies, but even for larger companies. Um, NLR actually together with DLR is, is exploiting some, some uh, state-of-the-art wind tunnels, for example. Uh, so we used to get companies from all over the world, uh, Embraer from Brazil, Comac from China, Airbus. Uh, they all used to come to the, uh, the wind tunnel uh, facilities. That was not necessarily my role in the company, but... Uh, um, you see that, that we used to work for, for companies from quite small uh, startups uh, up to uh, the, the very big ones that are out there in the aviation industry. Can I just ask out of interest, like a startup, what kind of budgets are they working with to use? Because I'm assuming you're renting out certain facilities for them then. 
Uh, it's facilities and, and it's the knowledge, uh, basically. So, uh, um, and, and yeah, what type of budgets, that, that obviously depends a bit on, uh, on the question. If you, if you want to do a wind tunnel campaign, that is uh, in, in the, uh, the biggest wind tunnel, uh, that, that is a very costly uh, thing. So uh, developing an, an aircraft uh, costs billions uh, or, or, or definitely hundreds of millions. Uh, from from start to finish. So uh, and in that space, uh, you always see that they are looking for support in engineering. Uh, so um, uh, that can be on aerodynamics, that can be on structures, that can be on systems, that can be on flight test support. That's something that that we did also is uh, especially the newer uh, companies in aviation, the new kids on the block. Uh, they were very happy with the experience that NLR had on uh, on flight testing and certification, for example. So that's something that we uh, we helped them out with. Uh, so uh, it can be a range of, of, of subjects, but it was usually uh, either knowledge or facilities or both. Okay, so then back to the sales question: How what what is your first day or first week look like? How do you even start looking? Are you just taking like Google and looking for space and aero? startups or companies in the neighborhood and just cold call them like how, how do you do business development for something like that, that that's an excellent question uh, so so the aerospace is sort of a niche market uh, and that has uh, i would say good things and bad things with it uh, the, the bad thing is that uh, there is only a limited number uh, of customers out there compared to some of the other companies uh, but the good news is that uh, they are usually not that difficult to find, so to speak. Uh, there is branch organizations, uh, for example, in the Netherlands, we have the Netherlands Aerospace Group, uh, where many of these uh, companies are already uh, a customer. Um, there is a lot of trade shows, uh, obviously, uh, and uh, it's it's also networking uh, for for a long time. And, and obviously, when when you join a commercial role in a in an uh, organization, just like in any other company, you have already other colleagues in the commercial team. Uh, there's usually somebody whose job you're taking, uh, so it's not like uh, you're starting 100% cold. Uh, you can start working on where somebody else left off. Uh, and then just find your own way basically uh, in the in the ecosystem and build up your network and uh, um, uh, yeah it's it's it's, it's a, a small community uh, globally uh, relatively small uh, I would say compared to some other markets uh, but that also makes it difficult to uh, uh, to get in so to speak because many people are knocking on the same doors so <laughs> so then eighteen years there why leave what was next. Uh, so I, I did multiple roles in NLR, I always uh, had a, actually a very great time doing those things. So I, I, I did the actual research, I became a project manager, program manager and then the commercial role. And then at some point, uh, I think uh, after 18 years, you start wondering uh, what life is outside of, of NLR in, uh, in my case. and. Uh, uh, I, uh, I always like to, to take myself out of my comfort zone every, every few years. That was also the reason to switch from the more, I would say, program manager, project manager to the commercial role is, is also just to uh, make a step and, and to keep growing as a person and to, to get new skills, uh, develop new skills and, uh, and, and see what you like. So uh, in yeah, 2015, uh, I also decided to, uh, that it was time for something new. Uh, and then the question was, what was that going to be? Um, uh, I definitely thought about uh, going to industrial companies, uh, work with these, uh, these larger industries. Uh, but uh, yeah, I just did sort of uh, soul searching with myself uh, on what I found important uh, in my career and in my work. 
And uh, at the time at NLR, I would say uh, there was quite a, a lot of freedom uh, to, to work on the things that you like. Obviously, no absolute freedom. It's still a company, but uh, they were always very good, I think, in, in, in giving people space uh, to, uh, to go after opportunities. And I really liked it. And I think doing that sort of soul searching uh, made me to believe that, uh, that, that I wanted to be an entrepreneur, uh, become independent. Uh, and be able to, I would say, select uh, the subjects I, I, I like to work on, the companies I like to work with, and uh, especially the, um, yeah, the, the causes I like to, to work on, like uh, making aviation uh, or, or transport in general more sustainable. Uh, and there was also another driver, uh, my current business partner, uh, he already had a, a company started up in the transport and logistics, so it's a completely different direction, but he had a very interesting uh, yeah, business model and, and a very interesting product, uh, I thought. Uh, so uh, uh, it seemed nice uh, to, uh, I would say, uh, as an entrepreneur to go after it and, and see if you can build something for yourself uh, instead of helping other companies to uh, to build their, uh, their their products nice so then you joined um, that company after uh, yeah I started my own company uh, uh, first uh, and he had his company uh, I joined his company and then now sort of we uh, we sort of <laughs> for branding purposes we were merging it all under under one single flag which is the, the trans innovate. Uh, branch, but uh, I'm, I'm still uh, so working and in the transport and logistics uh, and on the on the uh, aerospace side, helping a bunch of uh, companies uh, get their products uh, into the market and helping them find uh, funding partners and customers. So yeah, I want to talk about that phase in your life because it's super relevant to to the podcast and, and the audience. Maybe um, can you talk about? Yeah, that journey of what type of projects have you worked on? What kind of things have you done? Because um, I know that obviously you've also worked, um, I think it was a startup for electrical flights or something. Yeah. But can you just shape kind of the... I learned from stories. Can you sh share some stories? <laughs> yeah, sure. So, so uh, like I said, I started uh, basically with my eggs in two baskets, the transport and logistics part. But at, at that time, uh, although the idea was there, there was zero customers and zero turnover. So uh, that, that was a bit risky uh, um, because I do have a family and a mortgage, etc. Uh, so, um, but I, I could, uh, when I left NLR, actually, some of the companies in the ecosystem already approached me and say, uh, you have a great network uh, and, and uh, you, uh, you, you've got a lot of experience there so could you perhaps help us and uh, these are usually smaller companies uh, on a part-time basis uh, helping us to to grow and, and to develop business and, and to innovate so uh, that, that's how I started and I think the first uh, uh, in, in the aerospace business the first uh, company I helped out uh, was a company that did uh, backlights for cockpit displays uh, and actually also other displays but Sim flight simulators, uh, medical displays, uh, so they do the technology that is literally behind the screen, uh, trying to make that uh, also uh, more sustainable and, and more affordable and uh, especially very high quality. They were focusing on the, on the high quality market. Afterwards, I worked with a company on forest fires, uh, when an innovation uh, to make uh, forest fire fighting aircrafts uh, more efficient. 
so that was also uh, an interesting project I work on. Uh, and uh, after that, I uh, since 2019 now I'm on a part-time basis. I'm uh, working with Ampere, which is an, a startup uh, in electrical aviation. And then in parallel to these, I would say more structural support um, uh, that I provide, I also uh, do some smaller. Uh, yeah, consultancy jobs in helping people to, to write proposals or sharpen their pencil in their ideas and their business models. So uh, there's a, a whole list of smaller subjects that I work on uh, in, uh, in parallel as well. So, But those are usually sh short sprints of, of two, three months or something. I have to say uh, those uh, that, you know, the other little part that you mentioned, I think could be actually very useful. Uh, because obviously you have a ton of experience, a lot of startups need to write these proposals, all this stuff. What are some of the most common mistakes you tend to see? What is it that you actually do that makes it more valuable? Like, can you share some of these like proposals? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I definitely see a lot of startups with very interesting ideas. Uh, and I think the most common mistake or, or pitfall, uh, which I guess is very natural, is that people are very focused uh, on, on their products and on the technical development of their products. So I'm usually typically always busy with, uh, let's say, the high tech industry. Uh, mostly it's transport and aerospace, but uh, I have done some other uh, subjects as well. But it, there is always a technology component uh, into it. And you, you see that the companies in the proposal writing, they want to tell everything about their technology and why it's so amazing. Uh, and, and the reality is that the, usually the evaluators that are actually um, uh, yeah, need to evaluate these proposals for grants or, or investors, for example, uh, sure, they want to make sure that the technology behind it is sound, but they don't have the knowledge level uh, to fully understand it anyway. Uh, and what they would like to see is the much wider picture also of uh, the business model uh, and uh, how do you come from now to implementation, what are the major risks and especially the not obvious uh, technical risks. Uh, the technical risks are usually very well known to these companies, but um, uh, uh, I always, as an example, I like to use the toilet, uh, which has been patented somewhere in the 1780s, uh, or a long time ago, but it took like 100 years uh, for it to become uh, widely used. And the reason is that you need infrastructure for it. So you can have a toilet, uh, but if you don't have the infrastructure, then you don't want one. Uh, and that's actually the same now with, for example, uh, electrical aircraft or, or drones or uh, some of these other new innovations. You need the infrastructure to, to support it, else uh, uh, it, it won't work as a business idea, besides that the product can be great. So I think it's that wider uh, scope of things uh, to see, okay, how is your uh, product actually going to land in the, uh, the ecosystem of the users and add value and make sure that, that you know, all the stars are aligned well uh, for that idea to actually also materialize. I think that's something that I uh, bring in uh, for these companies, uh, questioning them. Uh, and uh, I don't always have the answers myself, but uh, I, I, I tend to be able to ask the right questions to get them thinking about, okay, yeah, yeah, that's, that's an important uh, part too. And then the proposal gets much more balanced on not just the technology issues, but really on, okay, how can I take this into a mature, market-ready product uh, in such a way that uh, yeah, infrastructure is there, uh, social acceptance, all these other aspects that are important for a project to succeed are, 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 are thought of. 
do you also work on have you worked on uh, some startups that required funding or something and you help them with that uh definitely that, that's <laughs> for most startups that's uh, one of the key things of course is is to find the funding uh, especially if, if you're developing something uh with technology and especially if you need uh you know large cost to to uh, to build prototypes uh, or test prototypes uh, then there is always a, a need for funding so that's that's definitely one of the key things that i'm uh, that i'm doing for these uh, for these startups so and that can be grant subsidy money uh, that's what i do quite a lot uh, and uh, also a little bit uh, uh, trying to, to to get to investors so h- how <laughs> maybe very simple question but like how do you just you look up certain subsidies that you're aware of or you contact certain investors you're aware of or like yeah what do you do then yeah uh so uh, obviously the fact that if, if you're in in that business uh you you find your way more easily so uh, there's definitely a number of subsidies that i'm very well familiar with uh, the, the number of, of instruments out there is also so large that it's impossible uh, for I would say one person to know everything from all of them uh, all of the time that uh, so I, I tend to focus on uh, on, on several uh, especially ones that that are used uh, quite a lot by uh, by startups uh, in the Netherlands and, and in Europe uh, European Commission grants and, and some national grants uh, from subsidy uh, and then from from uh, yeah investors I've, I also have sort of a, a list of of, of um, uh, yeah of investors that that I try uh, to approach uh, with an idea and not necessarily always immediately to 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 get funding I, I think it is always just uh, even just talking to investors early on. Uh, is is very valuable to see if they're interested in the subject uh, first uh, and also what for them would be the right moment to see this as an opportunity and to get on board so uh, I think that's also something uh, very valuable is is, uh, I mean going to an investor is not just banging on the door and say here's my good idea give me money Uh, so it's really uh, trying to explore also uh, whether uh, an investing opportunity should be a a two-way street actually it's not just an investor giving money to a company uh, it's also a company that should present an opportunity to an investor and i think it's trying to broker uh, these these two together uh, is uh, uh, yeah the, the key thing so um another question that i had then is regarding the other uh, part time that, that you're spending your projects on within your company um so can you tell me more about um uh, Ampere or the startup that you're spending your time with? Uh, how did you get involved? What, what happened there? Did they approach your company or yeah? Yeah. So so for for Ampere, uh, I actually got approached by them uh, because their uh, Susan Ying, who is the uh, the senior vice president of partnerships of of Ampere, uh, is somebody that has been in the industry uh, also quite long, like me. And uh, I think we met already once she was at Boeing. Uh, somewhere in the 2000s, uh, we met again uh, when she was working for Comac, and w- uh, I was at NLR working with Comac <laughs> in China. Uh, Comac is the, the Chinese uh, aircraft manufacturer. Uh, um, so we met again there, uh, and then afterwards uh, our ways separated again. Uh, but um, when Ampere, uh, Ampere is a US-based startup, uh, founded in 2016. Uh, and they also realized they wanted to have foot on the ground in Europe because they saw that uh, the political climate uh, in Europe towards uh, sustainable aviation was 
I would say, uh, from on a political level, much better than in the U.S., where at that time President Trump uh, was uh, in office, uh, who had some, I would say, different opinions about climate change uh, and, and a different uh, agenda. So, uh, and, and they also got a, a ton of requests uh, to come to speak uh, at conferences in Europe, uh, and uh, they felt that it was just good to have a, a European uh, point of contact here uh, to do, um, yeah, I would say, uh, to, to be the representative and uh, to be able to go to these conferences uh, and to be able to uh, expand the, the European footprint. Uh, and that, uh, so, so, yeah, Susan approached me uh, because she knew me, I would say, prior from, from the network. That's why I say network is, is quite important in the aviation industry. Uh, it's a small world. and. Uh, um, I met up with Corey Combs, who is the CTO and one of the founders of Ampere after that. And I really liked their approach on the electric flying and especially uh, how they thought they were going to get this to the market, which I think was a very healthy and very pragmatic approach. So I got enthusiastic about that and uh, started working with them in uh, February 2019, so uh, slightly more than two years now. And uh, meantime, we have uh, an English entity uh, with five uh, engineers uh, now as well. So things are progressing in Europe. I, I find it interesting that a lot of these US-based companies eventually end up opening offices in the Netherlands, uh, especially because the Netherlands is so small. <laughs> Do you have any idea why giants like a Tesla or in, in this case, this startup tends to choose the Netherlands? Yeah, my take on that is that the Netherlands uh, has a, a, a really good infrastructure, uh, there it is again, uh, in terms of knowledge. So we have some definitely some very good universities here, uh, three uh, excellent technical universities, but also some, some others. Uh, I think also from a travel uh, perspective, uh, the Netherlands is, is quite uh, easy to, to reach with, with Schiphol Airport uh, and, and some train lines, uh, so I think uh, that helps. Uh, and in general, I think, uh, yeah, the, the, just the, the climate to, to, to live here uh, is, uh, is, 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 is great as well. And uh, being in the Netherlands, you, you can quickly get access to uh, European uh, funding, for example, uh, there, there's Dutch funding. So I think it's a, it's a mix of things, but the entire infrastructure and, and the ecosystem and the, uh, just, just the, um, uh, yeah, I would say the, the, the travel, uh, the easiness to travel in, in and outside of, of Europe from the Netherlands and actually to the whole world. I think that's the, the mix of things that, uh, that makes the Netherlands uh, quite appealing to, uh, uh, to, to US companies to, uh, to come here. Uh, then I wanted to ask about the conversations that you uh, just talked about with the CTO and everything. Can you explain what they explained to you that made it so interesting? Uh, what I really liked in, 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 in their uh, approach on, on electric aviation is that, uh, in general, as, as I told you before, uh, innovation in, in aerospace is usually time-consuming and it, it is quite costly because of the certification requirements. Every, everything needs to be uh, uh, designed safe, but you also need to prove that it's safe and that just takes time. Uh, you need to interact with the aviation authorities uh, to prove that it's safe and, and they will scrutinize your, uh, uh, they, they, they won't trust you on your, on your uh, pretty face basically. Uh, so you really need to show 
very detailed uh, that you are meeting the uh, uh, the requirements and, uh, and and if you are doing something new in aerospace that is not covered by the current requirements you're even I would say in bigger trouble uh, because uh, the, the regulators need to invent the requirements or at least agree with the industry on those new requirements so and that's just a time-consuming process uh, and if you want to build a new aircraft from scratch in general, even without too much innovation, that is already a project that is usually uh, costing uh, like hundreds of millions uh, because of the, the prototype building, the flight testing, the certification, uh, maybe in some cases some internal tests. Uh, so that is really uh, it, 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 serious investments that you need to put on the table. Uh, and what I liked about Ampere is that they said we are not going to try to build a fully new aircraft with a new energy carrier, which is new for the regulators, and new types of engines, which are uh, the electrical power units, EPUs. Uh, so that's that, uh, that, that's a lot of new in there, and that is probably uh, you know like a, a very long path to the market in terms of time and especially also money. And they said, okay, let's start with taking existing aircraft and uh, retrofit them to uh, to hybrid electric uh, initially. Um, uh, and uh, by that you only focus on, I would say, what is really new, which is the uh, the electric uh, energy storage and, and, the, uh, and the electric propulsion. Uh, you still leave some of the older, and I would say, trusted technology in there as well. Uh, the, uh, the still conventional uh, uh, combustion engines. Uh, although you do want to uh, equip them with something that can use biodiesel or sustainable aviation fuel so that you can still make it more sustainable than it was. Uh, but that step to the market, especially in terms of the, the development money that you need to adjust an existing aircraft is easier than to develop something from scratch. So I thought that made perfect sense in, in terms of uh, trying to get to the market quickly. Um, uh, starting with smaller aircraft, uh, certify them, sell them, uh, get them out there and make sure that there is data because the, uh, what you really need to prove if you want to scale up at some point you come with a certain component and the, the regulator will ask you okay how reliable uh, is this component actually and you, you can say all you want but what I would really like to see is data and if you can say well we've flown now on the various aircraft out there we have flown so many hours with this technology we've had you know this amount of, of, of failures or, 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 or incidents or uh, something like that. So, so you, you can just prove basically how safe uh, it really is uh, and, and that, that will make the next step easier if you want to scale up to something bigger where the requirements get str uh, more stringent usually. So just for me to understand, they pretty much make an airplane like a Toyota Prius, a hybrid system that has both electric as well as gas propulsion. I initially, yes, yeah, yeah, and and, and that has two reasons. So as, as I mentioned before, the the energy density of batteries uh, is uh, not such that if you would make something fully electric, uh, the range that you will get with a decent payload uh, will be fairly limited. Uh, and uh, in order to, to get something into the market that is more widely applicable, although electric uh, flight I think is the best for short hops at the moment, there, there's definitely, uh, but there's also big opportunities there. There's a lot of uh, smaller airports that are hardly uh, utilized at the moment. Uh, so what Ampere is really aiming for is, is uh, doing much more point-to-point -point short hops between these uh, regional airfields uh, and avoiding the, the busy big airports where you need to wait uh, three hours in line to get through the passports and the luggage and the check-in, etc. So, uh, so uh, it's also about uh, not just electrifying aviation but really changing the, the way the aviation system uh, works. 
uh, and uh, by changing something into a hybrid, uh, I think that's just the fast step to, to the market, a little bit like the Prius uh, story uh, indeed. So, uh, and then obviously the, the end goal is, is to electrify it fully, uh, make no mistake about that, but it's basically not try to, to jump on, on the moon in, in one shot, but uh, take sensible steps. Uh, which, which uh, each of these steps should make market sense and there should be a business case for it. Uh, and, and that will also, uh, at least that, that's the idea that we have, it will also keep uh, um, uh, investors engaged uh, better because they see that the return on investment is after a shorter period of time than if you would develop something fully new. Uh, what I don't understand is um, the hybrid system because you just explained to me that electric is 60 times less efficient at getting you know propulsion out. Uh, so if you put in like an electric engine in there and make it hybrid, aren't you just making the aircraft heavier? Uh, or like, how does it work? Yeah, so the factor 60 is basically the energy density. So if you take one kilo of battery pack and one kilo of kerosene, uh, there will be 60 more uh, times more energy in, in the kerosene. So, uh, so, so correct, uh, there's definitely a weight drawback of, of using these batteries. And that's why uh, I would say the first step is uh, uh, yeah, most likely in, in doing a hybrid. Uh, because if you uh, if you want to take uh, everything with batteries, you, you need very big battery uh, packs. And especially if you go to the retrofitting market, what Ampere is doing, these aircraft weren't designed uh, uh, initially, of course, uh, thinking about, okay, let's, uh, let's put a huge battery pack in our aircraft somewhere. Uh, so uh, in that sense, you yeah you you will you'll have to switch to a hybrid initially before you go to fully electric. And for fully electric, then it's probably also it makes more sense to develop a fully new aircraft that is really tailored uh, to to full electric uh, flight. But even even with the hybrid, if the energy density is so so much less efficient, why would you even put it in there? Uh, like is is the battery designed in such a way that it actually makes sense like in a Prius where it just literally makes sense to have a hybrid uh, is there some innovation that came in or are they just sacrificing you know weights and just for the sake of sustainability, but not actually innovating. Yeah, it's 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 mostly range that they're sacrificing. So so uh, the aircraft, uh, the the hybrid aircraft will fly less far than a, a normal fuel aircraft. Uh, but if the distance that you can cover is still interesting for passenger flows, uh, if you look at some of these the, uh, these aircraft, they can actually fly much further. Uh, than they actually do in daily operations. They're operating uh, on, on very short routes. And uh, so we're actually uh, with Ampere, we hope uh, to be allowed to fly next week in uh, Scotland uh, between uh, Wick Airport and Kirkland Airport. Uh, so Wick is on the mainland and Kirkland is on the Orkney Islands. So that's, for example, a route uh, which isn't very far. Uh, the alternatives in transport are less. I mean, you can't get there with a the car or with a train because it's an island. Uh, so flying is definitely a, uh, a good way to go there, and and this on these distances, uh, uh, electric works really well. Um, what you what you do with a hybrid uh, initially is that you use it as sort of a takeoff assist. Most of the energy that you're using during the flight is used in the takeoff to get to the uh, the cruise altitude. Uh, so if if you use the battery there, uh, you will save f uh, regular fuel. Uh, and because electrical energy is cheaper than fuel, uh, ultimately that, that should save you uh, fuel costs. 
Uh, and, uh, and ultimately the idea is also that, especially if you switch to fully uh, electric, uh, that's the same with the cars, uh, that electric engines have uh, less maintenance than, uh, than combustion engines because they have much less uh, moving parts. Uh, in there, so so in the end, uh, the idea is to reduce the uh, the operating costs of the aircraft on on the shorter hops, uh, and um, uh, decrease the uh, the maintenance cost. Uh, so so that's where it makes sense. But you do sacrifice. You're right. Uh, uh, you do sacrifice on range. Uh, and so. But so how much range are we talking about? Because right now you guys are testing just the short flights, like a hybrid flight. How? far can you get with that and how far can you get with the same technology that is currently available on a fully electric flight yeah so so if we look at the uh, at, at the moment we have a Cessna 337 retrofitted flying as a as a test bed uh, which I, I said will fly uh, next week in, in in the UK and it has flown already in California and in Hawaii uh, with Mokulele Airlines uh, before in, in test and not, not with passengers um, the range we can get out of that aircraft, the longest flight we did is actually 500 kilometers, so that's still a decent wow. uh, range. Yeah. And then we're really squeezing, I would say, uh, 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 the range out that we that we can get. That is that is definitely uh, less than than uh, than the, the the range of the of the original aircraft, uh, like by a factor of two, uh, I think. So, uh, but yeah, 500 kilometers is, is is a decent range that you can use. If you would go for fully electric, uh, you would probably end up uh, with something closer to 15 uh, to 100 uh, kilometers uh, maximum range with this really? particular aircraft. Uh, so, so that that starts to be, uh, I would say, less <laughs> less appealing. Uh, next, we're we're aiming at uh, 19-seat aircraft, uh, the, the the twin otter, uh, which is uh, an aircraft that is widely used, for example, in Scotland uh, or England, but also in the Caribbean. Uh, so uh, definitely a lot of places in the world where they're using this aircraft. Um, and with that aircraft, we also still think we can get a decent range up to well, between 250 to 500 kilometers uh, out of the aircraft, which uh, for uh, quite a lot of uh, uh, routes uh, is, is sufficient. Okay, 15 to 100 kilometers is something I didn't expect, especially because you have Teslas that are going to come close to like a thousand kilometers soon. Um, is the development of what Tesla is doing with batteries, is that helping with electric flying? Uh, I think in general, uh, yes, of course, uh, because also, uh, although for cars, the weight is less uh, critical, so to speak. Uh, you don't need to, to get the, uh, the, uh, um, uh, the car off the ground. Uh, that, that's where it goes wrong. <laughs> so uh, uh, with aircraft, you need to take off and, and uh, every kilo of weight uh, just accumulates into uh, uh, additional structure that you need to carry the weight, uh, uh, etc. So it, it just, that's like always a small snowball effect, as we say. So that, that's less there for cars. But obviously the more uh, electric uh, vehicles we get out there, uh, cars, uh, potentially also looking at trucks, they're uh, looking at also in the maritime industry more and more they're trying to, to look at uh, more electric propulsion uh, as well so uh, and, and then there is of actually course, uh, one of the winners of our event uh, scone energy they they help electrify um, ships and they've been doing it for the last two or three years i think they were our first winner uh, and they and they got i remember they got an investment from diamond shipyards uh, so they're really trying to to do that. So yeah, sorry, continue. Yeah, no, sure. No, so you see, electrification is everywhere, and that I think is is the good news because that uh, will uh, definitely help trigger uh, 
the, I would say the battery companies uh, to try to, to, to get more and more energy dense uh, batteries, which is actually also for your mobile phone already uh, pretty useful if, if you can get a decent uh, amount of time out of your phone uh, and it doesn't weigh a ton and it's not very big. So, <laughs> uh, so I think uh, uh, the, the demand for, for more uh, electrified mobility uh, will drive the battery technology to, to improve and that's also something that we hope for obviously. Uh, uh, with Ampere is that uh, these batteries will become better and better and as such the, the range uh, will increase and uh, electric flight uh, will have uh, also a better range uh, in, the, in, in the future. Why do you think the battery companies have not improved in such a long time? Do you think it was just demand? There was no demand to improve? There was like I think they have been improving. Uh, uh, and actually, they've improved now to a level that it starts to become interesting for aviation, which wasn't the case, uh, I would say, uh, 10, 20 years ago. So in that sense, I think uh, a lot of steps have already been made. And uh, I'm not uh, a battery specialist myself, but I know that there is also some innovative companies also in the Netherlands for example we're looking at new battery technology that can reach higher energy densities uh, it's a company called Leiden Jar in, uh, in, in Leiden <laughs> uh, who have something uh, very interesting uh, ongoing which uh, you know, we are following that of course uh, but before you get the battery technology proven is one thing but to get it certified into an aircraft is another thing uh, because one of the key risks with batteries, of course, is fire, uh, as, as, we, uh, as you probably know. Uh, so you don't want to get a, a battery pack to, uh, to catch fire and, and just uh, you know, burn up because that, that goes... I've seen movies about from that, it, that's very violent. Uh, so that's something that you want to avoid. So, uh, and, and which can be avoided if you just do a good design uh, and, and keep the cell, the, the individual battery cells separated in a good way. Uh, so, uh, but that's uh, so to get from I would say a, a battery that that is working as a concept to a certified battery for aerospace. That again is taking so few steps because you need to make sure it's absolutely safe. How long do you think realistically we're going to even be able to switch to hybrids uh, in uh, electric? Uh, flying sir yeah so so if you look at uh, we're we're actually there um so so the Cessna 337 that uh, Ampere currently has is is flying uh so that's oh I mean commercially flying on the Boeing or something and commercially flying uh I, I think we are aiming to to get uh aircraft on on the market by uh like say 2025 the middle of this century uh actually there is already a, a fully electric uh, aircraft uh from Pipistrel uh Electro, uh, they have an electric aircraft which is certified, uh, but that's only a two-seater. So uh, uh, that's that's not really for I would say commercial transport. Very interesting, but it is interesting for training flights. And also last year there has been a company in the Netherlands, uh, E-Flight Academy, uh, which has started up uh, the first company that is offering uh, getting your pilot's license uh, uh, for a large part in an electric aircraft. So. Uh, so although that's not commercial transport yet, uh, you see that really the first applications even in aviation are already here. And I expect, uh, or at least if you look at the market outlooks from, from Ampere and from a number of other companies, they're all uh, trying to get uh, uh, the first uh, aircraft for commercial use out by, say, around 2025. But so training pilots, I am assuming their 100 kilometer range is enough or what? 
Yeah, so so this is really the the, the basic uh, pilot's license that you will get initially, uh, also for 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 hobby flights. Basically, yeah, there's a lot of people that have a pilot's license on on a, just a, a single engine airplane. Uh, so so this is a type of of training that you could start with. Uh, really, your first flying lessons you can do in this aircraft, and then you can do already quite a lot uh, indeed with a shorter range. Uh, in the end, for your license, uh, you do need to make some longer distance flights, uh, and then uh, I think at the moment they are still using uh, conventional uh, aircraft, which anyway is probably not a bad thing, because if you're training in an electric aircraft, won't be saying that you will be flying in an electric aircraft afterwards also, so it, it's probably also a good idea to get some training hours on a, on a normal uh, conventional fuel aircraft uh, as well. Because if you're training in an electric airplane, is it really the same as a gasoline airplane? I mean, for cars, I can assume it's it's quite similar because you have the same pedals and everything. But like, it, I don't know, is it the same for an airplane like it is for cars? Yeah, yeah, I think that the controls are, are, are very, very similar. Uh, so in that sense, uh, like with the cars, there, there isn't a really big difference. Also, the uh, the, the way that you control the, uh, the aircraft, um, is still the same. There are still the same elevators and rudders, uh, so you still have the same stick to 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 steer the aircraft. It's just that uh, the uh, the thrust uh, works uh, well slightly differently because uh, the the electric engines are responding uh, faster actually uh, uh, typically than uh, than a combustion engine. Uh, but but that's that's in the details I would say, uh, and that's the same actually with an electric car. Uh, you also uh, it, it accelerates faster, and and you have these these modes where uh, if you really uh, release the gas pedal, you're immediately starting braking and recharging the battery. So there there are some differences with the, with the cars also, but uh, they're they're fairly small uh, to to uh, I would say normal flying. So it's it's not completely different. So. Um Maybe I, I skipped over this. Uh, maybe you said the answer, but so for commercial flights, you said twenty twenty five. Is it? I'm. A, are you talking about like Boeing's then, or like? No, no, that that no, that will really be these the smaller aircraft. So uh, you'll have you'll see uh, probably nine seaters, uh, nineteen seaters maybe. Uh, so that that's more or less the range that you need to think of uh, because uh, electrification of the I would say the Airbuses and the Boeings uh, and uh, the, the Amsterdam London flight. That's really a, a long time away because there, I would say, the energy density is uh, is, is working against you, and especially if you look uh, at transatlantic, uh, for example, flights. Um, a key, I would say, a benefit, uh, so to speak. Uh, actually, it's not a benefit because it's polluting. But uh, if you fly over the Atlantic, you should think that for Boeing seven four seven, about thirty percent of the takeoff weight is fuel. Uh, Jesus, but can't you put like electric there just for the takeoff or something? Uh, well, for, for these aircraft, they're looking at electric taxiing, for example, uh, and, and taxi bots on, on the airport to, to make the, the taxiing more uh, efficient. But for the actual flying, especially on these longer ranges, you can normally take benefit by the fact that you're burning all this fuel and your aircraft gets lighter all the way. Uh, and because it gets lighter, you need less fuel to keep it in the air at the end of the flight. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, but like I said, that's 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 the benefit for weight, but that's a drawback for the environment because that fuel that you're burning ends up in the atmosphere, uh, obviously. Uh, but batteries don't get lighter, uh, so for these really long ranges, uh, even if you deplete the battery, it doesn't get lighter. So, so you miss this sort of weight advantage. So, for for these larger type of aircrafts, uh, I think you will see that the the, the shorter term solution will be much more in uh, what they call sustainable aviation fuel, where they're trying to get CO2 out of the atmosphere 
uh, and turn that into synthetic fuel and then put it back into the aircraft so that you're sort of getting a, a it's not a fully closed loop but an almost closed loop and you can save up to 80 percent of co2 emissions or something typically so so pretty much it sounds to me like if we want to create a climate neutral aircraft you either have to switch the fuel and create a closed loop environment like you just said or just have biofuel somehow but electric is just not going to be the solution for now unless somebody invents a battery that is more efficient or more energy dense than kerosene. Yeah, I, I think it will be a solution, but on the on the smaller ranges. Uh, so if you look at regional transport, it's going to be a very viable solution there. Uh, there's also hydrogen, by the way, uh, a number of companies. Yeah, I wanted to cover that actually in my next question. So I'll, I'll keep that to the next question. But but I and I think uh, what we really need to 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 uh, 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 to think about is not so much uh, when you're thinking about electrifying aviation people tend to say okay i take the same plane that i have i just switch the the normal fuel for the batteries and i've electrified aviation the, 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 uh, I would say the aircraft is a means uh, to get people from A to B. It is not this, uh, the end goal in itself. So in the end, mobility is about moving people from A to B. And I think we need to start rethinking uh, the entire mobility model that we have in, in, in the world. Uh, and uh, uh, a lot of times I hear that rail, for example, should play a big role in, in regional uh, travel in Europe. but. Um, do you know how much years it takes to put a railway in place between two cities somewhere? Uh, that usually tends to take decades as well because it, it takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of money. Uh, typically you need to make sure that the whole trajectory, uh, you get ownership of the land uh, to actually build a railway. Uh, so building a railway is, a, if the railway is already there, like for example the Amsterdam-Paris lane, uh, yeah, you know, uh, that, that's a great solution and, and take the train. Uh, that that works well. Uh, however, if you uh, if you look at um, cross-border flights, for example, from the north of the Netherlands to Denmark, uh, that's not too far. Uh, but rail connections are are almost inexistent there. So if you want to do that by by rail, uh, that is a very long, uh, tedious journey. Uh, and you could do that with electric aircraft. Uh, very easily. So uh, electric aircraft on, on the regional level, especially looking at the fact that we have all these, these uh, smaller airports in Europe and in the US actually uh, that are hardly used at the moment, uh, we could use those much more for, uh, for the shorter distances and it might even start to compete with, uh, with the car. Uh, if you want to drive from uh, Maastricht to Groningen in the Netherlands, uh, that's a few, a few good hours of driving. If you're doing that uh, alone by yourself, uh, and uh, versus if you could get onto a smaller aircraft and fly that distance electrically, uh, then uh, that, that could still be a, a good case. Uh, if we get, of course, uh, 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 the gasoline cars off the road, then uh, that, that should be the objective then. But so, so I think uh, uh, we really Is should- Is there enough demand for like small trajectories like that? Like, yeah, it, it seems to me like, it wouldn't be a viable business. I mean, I wish it was possible, but would it be a viable business model to have an aircraft running from like the southernmost city to the northernmost city? Because it's not like you can take your car along because when you arrive to, you know, Groningen, which is in the north of the Netherlands, you still have to drive around. 
Yeah, yeah, correct. So, so the, uh, but that, that's a good remark. Uh, so in the end, I think you need to look at door-to-door -door transport. Huh? People, uh, you don't want to go from one airport to another airport. You don't want to go from one train station to another train station. You have, you know, your home uh, or, or your work and you're going to another destination. So it's door-to-door -door, uh, travel. And I think in this mix, uh, yeah, we, we need to see uh, how, how to make that work, uh, basically. And then I think there are definitely uh, there is a lot of potential for uh, the regional electric aircraft, uh, but also uh, you see now the developments in the urban air mobility. So that's in the in the smaller segment for the shorter ranges, uh, uh, because uh, roads also tend to clutter up uh, a little bit, <laughs> especially in rush hours. So so there is a number of uh, um, uh, reasons why I think the demand uh, could be growing as long as the uh, um, the possibility is there. Huh? That, that, that's always a chicken and egg situation. If, if, there, if you have no possibility for something, then there's also no demand. Or uh, it's a bit black and white maybe, but uh, there is always a sort of a chicken and egg situation ongoing there. I want to I wanna go into, I think, the final topic we'll be discussing. But uh, I think in the last, I would say even months almost, or, or maybe few years, uh, uh, I feel like a new player has been coming along, which is uh, rocket ships, where before rocket ships were completely not realistic and comparable even to airplanes. Uh, obviously, SpaceX came with the booster rockets that are reusable, everything. It's becoming more like airplanes, which is very kind of visible now that SpaceX is transporting astronauts to the ISS. But also we've had some space engineers uh, on the podcast. Um, and now a couple of weeks ago with Blue Origin uh, and, and uh, Richard Branson also going up. Um, I remember one of the tweets that I read from Blue Origin, which I thought was ridiculous that they posted that in the first place. But one of the things that they mentioned is that they have more sustainable fuel. I think they use hydrogen or something like that. Um, and it seems to me like obviously hydrogen, or I don't know what they were using, but I'm assuming it was hydrogen, that, if I remember correctly. So it seems like a more sustainable fuel because water comes out and everything. But um, I, I guess I have two questions there. If Blue Origin was able to use more sustainable fuel like hydrogen, how come airplanes can do it? And is it really sustainable what they were using or is it just they're talking? Because we had a, a space engineer on and he said the issue is not the specific fuel that you're using. It could be even hydrogen or oxygen. But when you get into the upper atmosphere uh, and you're messing with the chemistry of the earth, you're putting in more hydrogen or more stuff into the atmosphere. It messes up the balance and that's what's wrong for the earth and not specifically what you're messing up. Um, so I guess... To phrase my question then, what do you think of hydrogen as an option? Is a rocket like Blue Origin sustainable on the one side of the question? And then second, you being an aerospace engineer, how do you see this new like rocket thing coming up? Is that going to be maybe replacing aviation for long haul flights or something? I guess I just want your opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Uh, so, so I am not uh, too familiar with the exact type of fuel that uh, the Blue Origin used. I, I also heard indeed it was, I think, hydrogen-based, uh, but I, 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 I'm not 100% sure there. Uh, but there is definitely also uh, a lot of activity in the aerospace community to look at hydrogen, uh, because uh, hydrogen uh, has a 
better uh, uh, energy density per kilo for sure uh, than uh, batteries uh, per volume. Uh, also better, but uh, 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 because hydrogen is a very uh, thin gas, so to speak. Uh, uh, how much compared to kerosene? If uh, energy, if batteries was like sixty, how much is hydrogen? Uh, yeah, I don't know the number out of the top of my head. I know that kerosene uh, for uh, per kilogram is still, I think, uh, maybe per kilogram hydrogen is even better. Per 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 volume, uh, kerosene is definitely better. Uh, so you would have to take a, a huge amount of hydrogen with you uh, especially in terms of volume uh, so so you need to pressurize it or you need to make it liquid uh, in order for hydrogen to, to start making sense but there are definitely a lot of activities ongoing there because uh, for the, the the slightly larger aircraft uh, it has definitely some potential I think uh, if you just look at uh, a, a per flight basis um, I think the the other thing with with hydrogen but actually uh, that's the same obviously with electric flight is also where is that energy actually coming from it doesn't make sense to, to start flying electrically uh, if uh, you need to burn coal uh, to generate the, uh, the electricity. That's just moving the problem around. So you need sustainable electricity. With hydrogen, you have a bit of the same uh, uh, issue because uh, hydrogen doesn't really exist in nature in large quantities. Uh, so you, you can't mine it and you have to produce it. Uh, and usually uh, people tend to use electricity uh, uh, to turn water uh, uh, into into hydrogen and uh, and oxygen, uh, but then you're uh, uh, basically you use electrical energy uh, to generate hydrogen. There are always some losses in this process, so you're already losing some of the energy. Uh, then you need to uh, to compress the hydrogen, store the hydrogen, transport the hydrogen. Uh, so. Uh, and in the end it ends up in the aircraft, it's, it's burned uh, and uh, quite often it's turned again uh, or you burn it uh, like the rocket and then you're uh, inserting it into the atmosphere and I am not 100% sure, I know that actually water vapor is also a, uh, a greenhouse gas uh, but I think it might, be, it might be less problematic than CO2 because uh, water vapor tends to fall down as rain uh, on, on the earth so <laughs> uh, but let me first say I'm not really a hydrogen expert there uh, but, uh, uh, but if you're burning it, you, it gets into the atmosphere if you're turning it again into electricity, you've basically started with electricity turn it into hydrogen, transport it, take it all these steps and then you're back to electricity which obviously is, is uh, I would say really from an energy perspective is, is less efficient. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, if it helps to decarbonize aviation on the, on the longer flights and the longer ranges then it can still make sense. Uh, so I think uh, what we will see is, uh, I, I, I don't like discussions where people are, you know, 100% black and white pro-electric uh, or pro-hydrogen and saying, well, the other doesn't make sense. I think, uh, as you see often in innovation, uh, um, that there is uh, definitely initially there's probably a, a good place for both electric aviation and hydrogen aviation and sustainable aviation fuel. Also sustainable aviation fuel has scalability issues with it. Uh, if, you, if you want to produce this uh, getting CO2 out of the atmosphere, if you see how much fuel we're burning on a daily basis in aviation, we need really to ramp up uh, production in order to, uh, to be able to, to, to do greening. So for all these three solutions, um, I would say the energy supply is, is definitely still uh, a challenge and, and probably for electric that is the easiest to solve with, with uh, solar and, and wind energy. 
but but there there yeah there there's never free lunch. I think uh, innovation is always uh, uh, yeah ne needs courage and needs time and uh, uh, and persistence uh, to make it work. But but we do need to move. So maybe a very basic question because I'm not an engineer. Is it like easy to maybe fit an airplane with some type of filter that kind of catches the CO2 out of the atmosphere or is that just completely unrealistic? Uh, well, the, it's, it's an interesting thought. Uh, obviously, the, the, uh, just looking at, at how aircraft propulsion traditionally works is uh, you are pushing yourself forward against the air. So you're taking a lot of air in in the engine. You heat up the air and that's where the fuel comes in. The air gets a higher pressure and then you spit it out from the back basically and then it's mixed with the the co2 and the fact that you can spit it out the back at a higher speed uh, or a higher momentum actually than what it came in with uh, makes you uh, move forward so you're pushing yourself against the air so to speak but you need the fuel uh, to to uh, to make that happen uh, you need to add the energy of the fuel and you need to add the fuel uh, to to the air that you are uh, emitting into the atmosphere so and if you would try to filter that out or uh, uh, I think uh, that would lead to problems because uh, if you reduce the, the speed of the air coming out of the engine you're just losing the trust so I think that uh, um, I'm not saying that uh, I, I try to avoid saying that things are impossible because uh, you know uh, uh, one week from now an engineer may prove you wrong but uh, it's definitely not a solution that I know that they're looking into as a I would say commercially viable solution for the moment so yeah. Uh, then uh, the question regarding the rocket ships, especially I know that SpaceX uh, wants to create like it wants to create these spaceship well uh, rocket ships that pretty much go from point A to point B like an airplane. Um, I have no idea what Blue Origins is doing. I, it's getting a lot of hate nowadays because it's tourism. Um, I I wanted to be one of the pro people, but. I don't understand if what they are doing is exactly just tourism in space, going 10 minutes up and down, or if they're also chasing the same idea, which I think they are, uh, of going from a, like maybe London to Shanghai in like 30 minutes or something like that. If that's the case, then I'm definitely pro uh, Blue Origins and SpaceX. Uh, but so my question to you is how you've been an aerospace engineer for so long, seeing what you've seen so far from these rocket companies, how realistic are their ideas? How viable are they to replace the the long airplanes? Uh, is this a case of like the car replacing the horse? Uh, yeah, I know. What's your opinion? Yeah, so uh, I think before we see this type of space flight uh, being able uh, to uh, be safe uh, uh, for larger amounts of passengers, so you need, uh, because obviously you need bigger uh, spaceships uh, if, you, if you want to carry a lot of passengers. Uh, and uh, before that is developed and certified and scaled up to a level that we can replace uh, long-haul aviation, uh, I think we'll, we're definitely talking about decades uh, uh, if, if, the, if it will ever happen. 
because that ultimately also depends on, on the economics. Uh, the, the idea with, I would say, low orbit spaceflight is, of course, that you uh, you spend quite uh, quite some energy to uh, take off uh, and to get to uh, a certain altitude. But uh, obviously, uh, if you get out of the atmosphere or, or into the very thin layers of the atmosphere, the whole drag uh, is is much less. Uh, that's of course the, where the benefit is, uh, where you can fly very fast uh, without any uh, aerodynamic drag. Uh, but then there is again the re-entry into the atmosphere, uh, where uh, there are also, I would say, some challenges in uh, in heating up uh, and, and and safely landing. And and before we are able to do that in vehicles that uh, I would say can also get a quick turnaround time, and, uh, because uh, at the moment, uh, if you look at uh, bigger airlines, they are coming in with the plane. They put all the people out in the airport, uh, the suitcases, the cargo, etc. And they want to fly again in, you know, like one hour for the bigger planes, technically uh, the, the, the turnaround time is like one hour. Uh, so they want to keep flying because in the end uh, aircraft are very expensive uh, and if you are buying one of them as an operator you need to make sure uh, that uh, yeah that you, you in, in the end you have a good business case and uh, by keeping uh, if you want to keep the ticket price low you just need to fly a lot um, and, and that's what they're trying to do now and I think with space flight uh, that uh, if that will happen it will probably happen more for uh, I would say the, the, the business people and the rich and famous uh, with a higher ticket price initially just uh, I think similar to supersonic flight at some point with with the Concorde was uh, so I, I, I'm, I, will, I will not exclude that that will happen but uh, I, I doubt that we will see that happen in, in this half of this century uh, and may, maybe in the second half of this century but uh, fa famous last words because uh, <laughs> many people have said things like this and <laughs> were proven wrong 30 years later so well, hopefully you'll prove him wrong then. Uh, but but I I understand because uh, obviously you have to make it commercially viable. So pretty much you're comparing it now to a Concorde, which actually uh, leads me. To, I know it was the final topic, but I really want to know this uh, then because you brought it up. Um, I have heard rumors that supersonic flight is coming back. Is this correct? Obviously you're more on the pulse than I am. Yeah, there, there, are, there are a number of companies uh, looking at, uh, at at supersonic aircraft uh, again. Uh, so uh, they're uh, they're working on it. Um, I don't know too much about the details. I, I know uh, that for Concorde it was always uh, tough. Uh, first of all, because of the uh, in the end uh, uh, the fuel efficiency uh, of that aircraft was was an issue, and that's something that they're trying to uh, to solve now, also using sustainable fuels. Uh, so that would be great. Uh, another thing that uh, also people tend to not to like about the Concorde is the sonic boom. Uh, if you fly supersonic, you get the sonic boom. Uh, and uh, that's actually, I think, one of the reasons that uh, they didn't like the Concorde fly over land, so to speak. So that's why they used it mostly on the, on the trans transatlantic uh, routes. So uh, uh, that, that's another uh, challenge, I would say, that they will have to deal with. Uh, but uh, a, a quick question about the sonic boom. So uh, when the aircraft passes the sonic barrier at 1G, does the sonic boom just happen in that spot or is this like a continuous thing that is happening? Uh, it's a continuous thing. Uh, so, so it's it's Mark One, uh, the the speed of sound. Uh, uh, actually, actually, what you will see is uh, uh, as soon as you are approaching Mark One, there are already spots on the aircraft where the uh, the air itself will go faster than Mark One, 
because one of the, the reasons aircraft are flying is that on the top of the wing, the air is moving more quickly than on the bottom of the of the wing, uh, and that's uh, in some cases how you create lift. Although with, with Concorde, I think it uses vortex lift. But um, but uh, so um, when you start to approach Mach one, you start to get uh, already locally sometimes some of these uh, small, I would say, shock waves uh, on the aircraft. But the moment that you break uh, Mach one, then definitely you get you get a, a big uh, shock wave from usually from typically from the. Uh, the, the, the nose tip of the uh, of the aircraft, uh, but that doesn't go away. If you go past Mach one, uh, that that shock wave is still there. It's just that uh, uh, if you are uh, flying almost Mach one, it's it's more or less like a curve. And the faster you start flying, the more of a sort of a steep triangle it starts to become. Uh, this this shock wave, but it, it will stay there because you're basically uh, because you're fa flying faster than uh, the speed of sound. It basically means that the, the air molecules uh, there's no air molecules, but the molecules in the air <laughs> uh, are uh, they don't have time enough anymore to get out of the way, so to speak. So they're they're really violently bumping into each other. That's where you get this shock wave. So it's just oh, so the, yeah. So the sonic boom is the bumping into each other actually so, so yeah it's not the molecules like bump into each other uh, uh, at some point and uh, but there's usually uh, that's the way sound propagates is, is just the fact that molecules bump into other molecules in the air and finally reach your ear but uh, but the problem is that once you read the speed of sound is that you're actually going faster than the, than those uh, the, the molecules in the air can move so you're violently pushing them forward uh, so to speak so uh, if i can sort of say that in non-engineering terms but uh, but that, that's what happens and that's where you get the, uh, the shock wave is that you're you're going so fast that the air sort of cannot get out of the way on time anymore in, in a normal way so you get the shock waves yeah so it's almost like you're crashing into a wall a continuous wall of air uh and that boom is then that those crashes that you're doing something like that. Yeah, yeah okay yeah uh but but so but so it's not like I imagined it, obviously not being an engineer, where you see all those pictures of the sonic boom. So it's not like this one sound and then it's like normal silence. It's just the whole time you have this super loud boom thing. Yeah, you, you keep having this. And that's also why you see that the shape of the Concorde, which went like twice the speed of sound, is is uh, very long. Is, is because they want to make sure that the, uh, the sonic boom, the shockwave that comes off the nose of the aircraft, doesn't hit the wings further on. Because there it starts to look really like uh, this. And you need to make sure that the shape of the aircraft with the wings is more or less inside. Uh, the shape of the shockwave because else you have this shockwave uh, which also causes vibrations uh, on your aircraft and that's something from an engineering point that you would like to uh, uh, to avoid so the faster you want to fly I would say the more uh, I would say long you need to make your, uh, your your aircraft or you need to find a way to deal with this shockwave over your wings but so uh, the sonic boom, is that something that the passengers hear or how does it work? I, I, uh, uh, I've never flown in Concorde. Uh, as an aerospace engineer, I would have definitely liked that. But uh, I did see a documentary once where one of the passengers was very disappointed on one of the first flights. And he told the chief engineer that, uh, you know, I, I would have expected uh, to hear something from this sonic boom, but there, I don't hear it. And then the chief engineer said that was the hardest part of the design. So, <laughs> <laughs> so from that I conclude that you don't hear it as a passenger and uh, I can also imagine if that would be a continuous thing that you would hear all the flight that wouldn't be very comfortable uh, you, uh, 
people like to fly. Yeah, I wasn't aware if it's a one-time thing that you hear as you pass the border or uh, or a continuum. But now I understand the physics of it. Um, then maybe a question from somebody who likes airplanes. Um, the Lockheed, which I think is still the fastest airplane uh, ever designed, hits sometimes like four G, uh, four, Mach four or something like that. Um, and it was originally designed as a spy plane. So it flew really high. That's how it achieved all these speeds. But because it was a spy plane, I'm assuming it didn't have a loud sonic boom on the ground. Otherwise, it would have been caught. Um, yeah, so uh, I think you're referring to the, the SR-71 uh, yeah, Blackbird. Exactly. So that, that black, the Blackbird, uh, yeah. Plane, yeah, that, fl that flew about three times the, the speed of sound. Uh, um, they were flying very high, so I think the impact of the sonic boom uh, would be less uh, on the ground. Uh, and the other, uh, I would say, uh, good news with the sonic boom is that uh, you will hear the sonic boom always later than, than uh, uh, because the aircraft is flying faster than the sound. So <laughs> uh, in that sense, the aircraft will have passed you by, by the time that you uh, that you will have uh, heard it. But uh, to be honest, I'm not quite sure what the uh, the exposure to the uh, of, on the ground for the SR-71 was. Uh, uh, but uh, they definitely tried to be already a little bit less visible on, on the radar, huh? which became a big thing uh, after, but, but already they tried in, in, the, in those times to, to be less visible on the radar. Uh, but yeah, detecting an aircraft by sound uh, uh, for something that is flying faster than sound is you're, you're, by the time you've detected it, you're too late. So if you want to take it down with your with your missile, then uh, the people tend to rely on radar. And at some point, these radars uh, and these missiles became also better and better, and that's why they abandoned these uh, these super fast uh, spy planes because uh, um, uh, it started to become uh, more and more tough to outrun the missiles, basically, and uh, at the same time. Uh, satellites became much more uh, easily available, so they just switched to satellites. Because so. uh, I was thinking if, well, obviously you don't know what it sounded like on the ground, but I thought that it was probably silent on the ground because it was so high. Of course, I don't know. Uh, and so then the solution would have been for supersonic flights that it would just go really high. Yeah, that, that definitely helps, uh, obviously, uh, because the sound sort of d d dissipates a bit. Uh, so uh, sometimes you see these uh, nice movies on the internet where you have a supersonic flyby from a fighter jet at really low altitude, and then you hear this intense uh, bang. And uh, I think if you fly higher, uh, it, it will it will dissipate a little bit in, in the in the atmosphere. So that will probably help to some extent, but. Uh, to be honest, I'm not 100% sure on, on the dynamics of how, fly, how high you would need to fly to, to make it completely silent, but, uh, but it definitely does help. Uh, so at so one point yeah. it would have to become a spaceship. <laughs> um, clear. Okay, uh, we've been talking, I think we're nearing the end actually, uh, but before um, I, yeah, I, I let go of you, I wanted to kind of roll out the red carpet for you, um, maybe tell the people kind of where they can find you, what you're working on, and, and also do you have any last words for the audience? Uh, yeah, where, where you can find me, uh, people can, if people are interested to reach out to me, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Michiel Salir, so you can definitely find me there uh, for sure. Uh, you can always approach me uh, for uh, any questions related to, to, to technical innovation uh, and, and sustainable aviation uh, in general. I, I always like to spar with people and to share thoughts, so uh, people are always welcome to, to reach out. Um, I, uh, 
I think one last thing I would like to say to the audience is there is that, that making um, aviation sustainable is a marathon uh, and sometimes people uh, get hyped up too much. Eh? You, uh, you have the famous hype curve, I guess. Uh, you see that now also with, with urban air mobility is a lot of companies working on it. It's getting a lot of attention and in reality uh, innovation is, is usually uh, it's, it's a marathon that we're running. And I, I tend to compare uh, the, the innovations that the revolution that we're doing now in the aviation industry switching to uh, zero emission or, or sustainable uh, modes. Uh, if you if you go back 100 years uh, to the, the start of aviation, um, the first flight of the Wright brothers was something like 37 meters uh, at, at Kitty Hawk Beach, so a very short flight with only one person. If I translate that now, and now, uh, for example, uh, when, when people say, oh, we have the, uh, the, the pipistrelle now and it is flying with two people, then people say, yeah, but it's only two people, you know, it doesn't, uh, what, what's, the, what's the big deal? If we would have said that 100 years ago with the Wright brothers, uh, just say, okay, so one person, 37 meter, what's the big deal? You know, you can't move forward like that. You need to think uh, uh, f uh, about the future and you need to keep moving forward. The first actual passenger flight in aviation, as far as I could find it in literature, has been done in 1914 in the US, 37 kilometers, one passenger. So still not big business, so to speak. But then it started to speed up. Uh, London, Paris, first flight commercially in 1919. But it took 20 years more in order for us to fly transatlantic. And uh, I think even a few of these early pioneers in aviation said, okay, flying is nice, but we will never be able to go transatlantic because the engines are just not good enough. Uh, uh, to, to reach that. so uh, And then you see that at some point you get caught up by technology. Uh, as, as soon as people see the benefit and as soon as the drive is there, uh, I think we as a, as a species, mankind can be very creative in, in pushing things forward. And I really hope that, that people will have the patience and the persistence uh, to pursue uh, sustainable aviation uh, and, and realize that, uh, that this is a marathon. So um, we need to take it one step at a time, uh, but we will get there. I'm, I'm pretty sure that we can, we can make uh, aviation sustainable. I think on those inspiring words, we can definitely close this. It was an absolute joy having you on. I learned so much about aviation and the engineering part. So many things that I wasn't aware of, um, obviously not being an engineer. Uh, I think uh, maybe also some interesting things for maybe startups uh, who are trying to enter this um, and some interesting topics of innovation. Super exciting to have you on. And yeah, hopefully I'll see you in the future on a different episode as well. Thank you so much. Definitely. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you. If you like this episode, you can check out our most recent one here. And if you haven't already, make sure you click here to subscribe and see the next one. But if you're interested in more tips and tricks, then make sure to join our Facebook group where you can find thousands of like-minded people and you get direct access and support to any business question from the entire startup funding event team.